we've told you for a couple weeks now that we're going to spend a little time honoring Hannah for her commitment to this community and uh, as she's kind of wrapping up her time here and her and her family will be moving to Seattle. Uh, but before we do that, I, I wanted to share just a thought, uh, a brief one out of Acts chapter 19. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Acts chapter 19. And it's amazing to me how God seems so often to weave what has been shared or a thought that's been given or an update like the Morris has just shared and weaves it into what it is He's wanting us to grasp or to get in the text. Because a lot of times I think we live life disjointed from that, but God's Spirit is moving in a way that makes it evident that what He wants to say and what He wants us to hear uh, is being repeated and coming clear again and again and again. And in uh, this particular passage, uh, there's a lot of interesting parts in Acts 19. Uh, but this particular passage, I, I want to get you to start thinking for just a moment on the idea of expectations. There's a lot of our language that is phrased around expectations. In fact, we have uh, a lot of idioms even that we use that talk about um, our understanding of expectations. Let me give you a few just to, um, for example's sake. You've probably heard the phrase before that someone has bit off more than they can chew. Have you heard that phrase before? It's an idiom talking or an expression that's starting to say like somebody thought it was going to be a little bit easier than in reality it was, or they took on a little bit too much or something along those lines. My mom used to say to me all the time when I was growing up that my eyes were bigger than my stomach. I don't know if your mom ever said that, but we would like go to a restaurant and I would order something and not have the ability to finish it. And she'd be like, Russ, your eyes are always bigger than your stomach, right? Describing that like, I thought it was going to be more and I just couldn't quite live up to what it was. We say things like, it's, you're getting more than you bargained for, or we talk about the idea that we sell someone short or we sell something short. And so we have all of these expressions that are really, um, let's not go to that slide yet, Shin. But we have all these expressions that really speak to the idea of the difference between our expectations, the things that we're like really hoping for, and then our experience. Uh, they measure, in some ways, the distance between what we were hoping for and what reality is. And again again, you see these things come up in life. Uh, an illustration would be simple, um, related to the movies. A lot of times you hear someone describe, man, there was this movie, it was awesome. You begin to hear about it again and again, and people are talking this movie up. And so you're like, you can't wait. You're anticipating your expectation level of the movie is huge. And then you go, and then you're like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, it's just so-so. Why? Because the expectation was so high that reality didn't quite live up to it. And so a lot of our phrases really are around that idea of the expectation was high, but it came up short. But it's interesting that it, this idea also works in the opposite way, this um, a couple days ago, I had the chance to be in part of the Cascades. And going into the trip, I had told several people where I would be camping and, and kind of the region of the Cascades we'd be hiking in. And over and over, they said, man, that is like the most beautiful place. You, it'll take your breath away. You'll be amazed. You've, you've never seen anything like it. And I remember going and, and starting the hike, and we would take these pauses, and we would look at the creation that God made, and we went, wow, like the bar was here, 
And what I'm experiencing is even greater. Like I can't put words to it. And there's times in life that things happen like that. Where your best ability to try to describe it always falls short of what in reality it is. Yesterday, I had the chance to be at a a beautiful wedding. Got to see this couple. Both of them had been interns at one point at New Community. And they committed their life together. And as they're saying their vows, I I think it's just because I have weddings on my mind a lot right now. I have five coming up and I'm just just thinking about all of these ceremonies and and just this commitment they're making. And I, I remember sitting there Yesterday, and they started saying their vows, and I thought, man, sometimes we just, we hear what's being said, but we don't grasp the magnitude of it, right? That we recognize that this is a huge commitment they're making. We recognize that they're both going into it, understanding it's going to be beautiful, and understanding that it's going to be demanding, right? That there's this commitment to one another, But as I was sitting there, it hit me and struck me again that what they're doing in that moment when they make those vows, they're actually doing what I would consider an otherworldly spiritual act. I mean, something that we can almost not even put into words. And the reason I I think that is because what they committed to do in that moment is to take two lives, two unique, distinct personalities, interests, passions, life experiences, family situations, all of that. And they committed yesterday to figure out how, by the grace of God, to make two independent lives one. Completely one. I mean, Trinity kind of one, right? This oneness that's so interwoven, that lives are so dependent and related to one another that that people would go, when they look at the couple, they would go, they're one. It's hard to distinguish because they're unique personalities. They're different. They're their own person, but they're in some mysterious way one. I mean, what they were committing to in that moment was not like to be roommates for life. Right? They're not even committing to run parallel lives on the same track. They're not even committing in that moment to say, you know what, I want to live in a committed mutual partnership with one another where it's for your good and it's also for my good and we'll do this for a really long time. What they're actually saying is that we are going to fight every day that we wake up to be so unified, so together that there is this mysterious oneness that happens. I'm going to venture to say that I think in our society we've kind of undershot that expectation a little bit. Right? We, we go, yeah, committed, yeah, we go, partner, yeah, we go, yeah. We get to love each other. We get to... No, we're talking the Trinity oneness. That, that's like what we're shooting for, right? High bar. In Acts 19, I think a very similar high bar gets demonstrated. Paul is in Ephesus. There's these really cool correlations if you ever want to do a study between what he's saying here and what he writes about in Ephesians. And over and over you see these kind of uh, interwoven ideas that are being expressed. But 
We come to this one section, Acts chapter 19, verses 11 to 20, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but I'm just going to kind of encapsulate the story. Paul's going around, and basically everything he touches is healed. I mean, he's, uh, miracles are happening, great things are, are taking place, and there's a group of people in Ephesus that are uh, really tapped into the supernatural. They're wanting to experience uh, everything that's otherworldly. They're wanting uh, to understand demons, to understand the other side, to, to really dabble in all of that, the, the higher powers, so to speak. And in the midst of it, Paul brings it up in Ephesians again and again, and there was this one group of guys, seven guys, supposedly of the high priest, although the high priest is never recorded in any history book that this high priest existed. But seven guys, maybe kind of masquerading as people of spiritual authority that began to do exorcism, began to like do things with demons, and began to um, earn money from this occupation. And they're doing it again and again and again, and they see what Paul does, and they go, like some of these villagers, they're like, man, I want some of that medicine. Like, what, what is happening here is stuff that we can't even do. This is like blowing our mind. And so, they listen to the formula, and they go to the next exorcism, and they say, well, in the name of Jesus, who this guy Paul speaks of, we command you to do... X, Y, and Z. And in that moment, the story goes that this demon kind of empowered the person it was indwelling, and all seven men were beaten down, stripped naked, and left bleeding. Right? Now, this is not a passage that comes up in the lectionary very often, and so a lot of people don't really share this passage frequently, but there's this story that's describing the way there's this interaction between what God's power is doing and what the evil spirit world kind of is doing. And there's this interconnected challenge, right, to the reader. And there's a lot of different messages or ideas or lessons you can draw from the text. For example, not uh, manipulating God or uh, seeking to understand that we the things we often try to control are the things that end up being dominating in our life or controlling us. We could go on and on, but there's this unique correlation that I think relates to what Paul is saying in Ephesians and then also relates to what Jeremy and Janelle shared this morning. There's a passage, you don't have to turn there, in Ephesians 3, it's going to be on the screen, it says this. Paul is talking and he says, Of this Gospel I was made a minister, like all of us that follow Jesus are, according to the gift of God's grace, which He was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Let me pause there for a moment. What he's saying is, It's my responsibility as a follower of Jesus, and God gave me this unique calling to begin to share with everyone I come in contact with that the Gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. That it radically changes everything about who we are. And he goes on to say that this isn't available just to the Jewish people, but is available to the Gentiles. And it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. That there's this mystery 
that now has been made known and he's describing this in this text. And then he gets down to this last phrase and he says this, so that through the church, so that through us, those in the family of God, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to. And pause there for a moment. This is where I think we sometimes undersell the idea. If you were to guess for a moment, and you don't shout it out loud because some of you have probably memorized this exact passage. But if you were to shout out in your mind like this, who would be the people that we're supposed to make known the manifold, multicolored, it means, wisdom of God? Who's that to be made known to? I think if you kind of took a poll and began to like get answers from people at large across our country, you'd have a lot of different answers. Who is this wisdom of God to be made known to? Who is it that's supposed to see that we live in the kingdom of God in a way that's different than how everyone else interacts in the world? Who is it that's supposed to be, know that the way of the church, the unity, the love for one another, the way that we express this faith, who is that to be made known to? I think most would venture to say it's to be made known to my neighbors. It's to be made known to my co-workers. It's to be made known to my family, my friends, my church. We might list a bunch of different groups of people it's to be made known to, right? But he says this, it is to be made known to the rulers and the authorities. But he doesn't just stop there. It's not just the rulers and authorities in our city, although I think that's true. It's not just the rulers and the authorities in our nation or the rulers and authorities in our world. What he's saying is, the manifold wisdom of God, this understanding about who He is, is to be made known to the rulers and the powers in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. What he's saying, and this is why I think we've kind of undershot it a bit, is that the kingdom of God and the way we live, the way we interact with one another, the life that is seen among the people of God is supposed to make known the truth and the wisdom and the beauty and the power of God all the way to the heavens. Not just to your neighbor, not just to someone near you, to the highest authorities in the universe. How we live is to speak in such a way that those who aren't even human grasp it. And that's crazy. Think about that. I mean, that's, that's what our life or the life in the church is supposed to look like. That's why in this passage, it's interesting, these guys are confronted by the demon, right? Weird story again. They're confronted by the demon, and the demon says to them this, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who the hell are you? Is basically what he says. Okay? And... But, so he's saying, listen, I know who Jesus is, 
But here's the weird phrase. I know who Paul is. I know who the church is. He would be saying to us today, like, I know who new community is. Could he say that? I know who you are. I know that the way you've been living and interacting and moving demonstrates the kingdom of God. It demonstrates that the evil forces have no spiritual dominion at all. That it's been broken because of the way you live. Because of the way you love. Because of the way you interact. That's what he's saying to us today. And the rest of the passage says this. That when everyone heard about that, And when everyone saw how the church was living, first of all, many came to know Jesus. And second, even those who knew Jesus, that were kind of giving their life away to other things, that had not quite dedicated all of who they were to following Yahweh. It says that they brought all all the stuff that was like... in tangling their life, and they burned it. They got rid of it. They dealt with it. So much so, the text says, in today's standard, it would be about five to six million dollars of stuff that was gathered. Five or six million dollars. And burned it and said, we will not be controlled by this because we're controlled by Him. Is that our posture? And that's what those three guys did. Right? is that something happened in a way that they realized there is someone more powerful than all. And he captures us. And the way this group lived and the way we live is part of what writes that story. Let me pray and then we'll transition to a time with Hannah. So let's pray. Father, we are just grateful for what you're doing through the Morrises, how you're using them. God, we want to be a part of that same story and how you're moving through us. God, take our weakness, take our brokenness, take um, our lack of understanding, but help us to, to live into the fullness of what you're calling us to. Help us to understand that sometimes the, the bar or the expectation we set for ourselves is so short compared to what it is that you desire, that you want to make known your power and wisdom and glory and majesty, not just to people around us, but to all of the authorities and the powers in the entire world because of the way we live. God, may you use us in that way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.